and welcome to episode 156 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Tony Morrison, Kelsey, Sam, Darcy Price, Odessa Heaslip, Catherine Christensen, Katie Bendixson, The Humble Lantern, Caroline W, Katie from Portland, Hannah Ord, Carmichael Nicholas, Chels K, K Long, Adam F, Melissa Leung, Victoria Crow, Kate Ireland, Jennifer G, Cassandra Harris, Liz Miller, and Amy Tate. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and I appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is Oculus. Oculus was released in 2013. It is 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. A recently released inmate from a mental asylum learns from his sister that the murders he was convicted of committing were actually orchestrated by a supernatural entity, the Lasser Glass Mirror. I think in order for this film review to make sense, I need to add a little bit more onto that synopsis. Tim is released from a mental asylum and he is met by his sister who immediately suggests that they need to avenge their parents' death, basically. Which is pretty intense for somebody who's just out of asylum, but we'll, we'll get to that in time. As always, with these film reviews, I'm going to do my likes and I'm going to do my dislikes, and we're going to start with the likes. Now, as somebody who suffers from hair loss, Kaylee, the sister who goes to meet Tim after he's out of the asylum, she has the swingiest ponytail I have ever seen, and honestly, as somebody with very little hair, that it is my dream to have a swingy ponytail. And when her ponytail is swishing along at the beginning of that movie, I was I was enthralled and I was jealous and I was impressed. I just, I wanted that ponytail. I know it, it seems like a very trivial thing to like in a film, but I really enjoyed the ponytail action. I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I spent a considerable amount of time trying to figure out if it was really her hair or if it was hair extensions. And actually, very frustratingly, I think it was really her hair. So this film is a film that utilises flashbacks, I think, really successfully. So we move between the events of their childhood that landed Tim in the mental asylum and the events of the present day where Kaylee is desperately trying to avenge the death of her parents. And actually, it's done very effectively because we that's how we tell the story is we move between those two timelines and I actually I thought the movement between the two timelines was done really really well I think the story could have been told primarily in either timeline and the two didn't have to mix but I think it actually benefited much more from having the mix of the two timelines what I really didn't expect in this story was how the story played out we like immediately find out that Kaylee wants to avenge the death of her parents and Tim and her are at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of belief. She believes this evil mirror is responsible. He believes through, you know, years and years of being institutionalised and through years and years of therapy that actually it wasn't the mirror. It was a tragic, horrific accident that was caused by mental health issues. And you kind of as you go through the story, there's an ambiguity as to which version of events is real. The ambiguity disappears after a while. But in the beginning, you're kind of like, oh, I hated the sister in the beginning because I thought, what in the world is going on? Her brother has just been released from this institution and her first conversation with him 
is, hey, do you know the way our parents died? I think we need to avenge their death. I found the evil mirror. We're going to destroy it. And I, I, you know, I'm not somebody who has spent time in a mental health facility, but I'm pretty sure if that's the first conversation you have with your sibling after you get out, it's going to be pretty triggering. I would personally be bounced right back into that facility, I think, because that is, that's a lot. And I thought, why in the world is she having this conversation with him when he's literally just stepped out the gates and she's there with a pickaxe waiting to smash up the mirror? Do you know what I mean? And it really annoyed me. And I thought, I hate her. I hate her character. This is really stupid. This couldn't possibly happen in real life that she would be this obsessive from the minute he got out of the institution. But actually, give it time, have patience with it. As time goes on, it does make sense as to why her character behaves the way she does. And then it becomes less annoying as time goes on. But in the beginning, I thought, oh, I can't be listening to you. You're very intense. And what you also find out very early in the film is that the mirror warps your perception of reality. So the entire way through the movie, it it becomes like really mind bending because you're trying to figure out what's real and what isn't, what's happening, what isn't happening. And it's really, really interesting. And I was actually pleasantly surprised because it didn't focus on jump scares. It didn't focus on like, oh, there's something creepy that you can see in the mirror. No, it focused on the fact that the characters and you don't know what reality is in this movie. And that's the concept that drives the horror. It's not jump scares. It's not like scary music. It's the fact that nobody really knows what's going on. I did think as well that the story of the mum and dad, so the flashbacks, I thought were really well done and devastating. I really enjoyed the storyline with the mother and enjoyed is totally the wrong word. I think, you know what I mean? It's it's definitely not joyful to watch people suffer. But, you know, I I thought it was a good storyline. I was moved by it. I was really horrified by it. And I thought, yeah, that's that's pretty creepy. And now we move on to the dislikes. In the beginning of my dislikes column, I had written that the sister clearly has no regard for her brother's mental health and his stability and hasn't thought through any of how it might impact him. But as the film goes on, you kind of understand why she behaves like that. So while it's a dislike, I also appreciate why it happened. Like I understood why it happened but it was very annoying. And then there was a lot of gore in it for me and that's very subjective. I totally know that's very subjective and everyone has a different threshold when it comes to seeing levels of gore. But I can just tell you that anything to do with fingernails is one of my icks. Oh, it makes my legs go to jelly and there were a good few moments in this film that made my legs go to jelly when I was watching it and I thought, oh, it was effective It was kind of important for the storyline. It wasn't unnecessary gore, but there was a lot of gore in it. So here's my problem with this film. And I want to preface this by saying that I know this is a very popular horror film and lots of people really enjoy it. And with that in mind, please don't take what I have to say about it next personally. Because sometimes when I say I don't like a film, people get very sort of personally offended by it and assume that I just didn't understand the film. I did understand this film but I felt like it was really missing something. And I don't know what that something was. I think a part of it was because there was no backstory about the mirror. And I do hate in films if there's too much reliance on the backstory. If the backstory of the demon, the monster, the spirit, whatever it is, takes up the majority of the storyline, then actually I just don't find that very interesting. But in this case, 
We just have this mirror, this sort of inanimate, empty vessel, but it doesn't have any story behind it. So we don't know where the mirror came from. We know that it has like a history of being responsible for the deaths of people, allegedly. But there's no attempt to explain why that might be happening. And I found that, I don't know, I found that because of that, it lacked something. It lacked a sense of menace maybe for me. I'm not entirely sure what I wanted from that aspect of the film, but I know that I didn't get it. The other thing was that it's not a spoiler to say that the mirror alters people's perception of reality. It's very clear from early on in the film that that's what's happening. And as a result of that, the film becomes weirdly predictable. Like I knew early on in the film, I could pretty much map out what, what was going to happen And I kind of knew when we were starting to get to the climax of the film and get to the ending, I was pretty, pretty sure that I knew what was going to happen. So the ending wasn't really a surprise. And I don't know why that, why it was so predictable, considering the whole concept of the film was about mind bending and and realities and, you know, not being able to trust reality and not knowing what was real and what wasn't. So I don't know what it was that was lacking. The performances of the actors in the movie were good. The storyline was kind of interesting and fresh, but it just lacked something. I don't know what it was. I think it was the lack of background and I think it ended up, while while trying to be unpredictable and mind-bending, it sort of became quite predictable. So I think I'm going to give it a three out of five. Like, it's it's fine. It was interesting to watch, but I wasn't um, I wasn't completely enamoured by it, to be honest. Which brings us to our story this week. Our story this week has nothing to do with mirrors, although there is a mirror in one of the stories. So, you know, if that's a connection, tenuous as it might be, it's there. Theatre people are a superstitious bunch, and the superstitions that exist in the world of the stage are numerous and sometimes bizarre. Most theatres still to this day have a ghost to light, a single bare light bulb that is left burning throughout the night when the theatre is empty. The logical explanation for this is that stages are pretty treacherous places. You may not see or find the edge of the stage in the dark and take a tumble into the orchestra pit below, or you may trip and fall over equipment on the stage and in the wings. The less technical explanation for this is that every theatre has a ghost, and therefore every theatre has a ghost light to allow for the ghosts to remain active in the theatre overnight and enact or watch their performances without being impeded by the darkness. Some also say that the ghost light is there to scare the ghosts away. It's bad luck to have a peacock feather on the stage, because it is said to resemble an evil eye. It's bad luck to say good luck, and as a result you'll hear actors and crew whispering at each other to break legs. Macbeth can never be uttered for fear that it'll bring bad luck to the show And the list goes on. And it's not just the superstitious actors and crew. As audiences, we are continually entranced by ghosts on the stage. From The Woman in Black to 222, we're still craving seeing those ghosts being brought to life, as it were. The ancient Greeks used something called temple magic, using complex systems of ropes and pulleys to make doors open and close on their own and through piping and tunnels 
they could make whispering sounds come from the walls themselves. In Shakespearean dramas, we had the bloodied ghost of Banquo and the ghost of Old Hamlet, who were ghosts of revenge, ghosts that would try to bring about the demise of those who had wronged them. In Richard III, Richard awakens to a stage awash in blue, which in Shakespearean times meant the spirits of the dead were all around you. For Richard, these spirits came to represent the power of the human conscience. In the 1797 play, The Castle Spectre, the ghost was a woman in a white dress, who appeared on stage looking deathly pale, with a bloodstain that appeared and spread slowly over her dress. And the Victorians really went all in on the stage ghosts. The Victorian period was the glory period for the psychic medium stage shows, and one of the first 19th century innovations was the Phantasmagoria, a spooky magic lantern show in which images of the dead projected onto smoke loomed menacingly over the spectators. And this was the first time where audiences sat in the dark in the theatre to really heighten the tension. And also to hide the tricks that were being used to create the illusions, obviously. The Victorians invented a way in which to create an illusion of figures that walked through walls. And they even figured out how to make ghosts ascend through the floors of the stage and glide across the stage without taking a single step. But what is really interesting is that while we are fascinated with the creation of ghosts on stage, we are equally as fascinated with the ghosts that seem to plague the world of the theatre. There is the Lady in Grey who roams the stage of the Theatre Royal in Bath. There is the ghost of the Adelphi Theatre, William Terrace, who was stabbed and appears in a greenish light. And the Victorian children, seen at the Liverpool Empire. There's something about the world of theatre that seems to transcend the boundaries of our world. It's like we willingly enter into a fantasy world and suspend all disbelief, and somehow, through this, we seem to just accept that ghosts and the theatre go hand in hand. The Victoria Theatre in Dayton, Ohio, was a place of fire and magic, both literally and figuratively. It was the home of shows from the likes of Harry Houdini and drew in crowds from far and wide, but it was also a place of great change and flux. It was first built in 1866 and burned to the ground three years later. It was flooded in 1913 when the Great Miami River burst its banks and downtown Dayton was submerged. Again in 1918 it was destroyed in a fire. It has undergone numerous rebirths, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, and was named and renamed until it became the Victoria Theatre. And while you may think that I'm about to tell you stories of actors and crew that perished in fires or drowned tragically in the floods, that is not the case in the Victoria Theatre. The Victoria Theatre is home to three distinct and disturbing ghosts, with equally disturbing backstories. Sitting in the box in the theatre always carries an air of dignitary, and it was nice for a couple's night out. The boxes offered a sense of privacy, almost like the play was being performed just for you. John and his wife Sarah were sitting in the box taking in every minute of the performance. They were so engrossed in the show that they barely noticed the sudden change in atmosphere that surrounded them. The only hint that something had changed 
was that Sarah pulled her cardigan closer around her body, but neither tore their eyes away from the stage. Aside from the chill, Sarah felt nothing, but John began to shift in his chair. He felt suddenly uncomfortable, as though he needed to leave the box and as quickly as possible. He felt the prickling, fizzy bubbles of anxiety start to spread from his middle all the way out to his extremities. His breathing began to quicken. What the hell is wrong with me, he thought. He looked around to see if there was anything that was causing his body to react to this perceived threat, but there was nothing. Sarah was sitting beside him, her chest rising and falling calmly as she watched the show. John realised that he could no longer hear the action on the stage or the laughter of the audience. The only sound he could hear was the pumping of his blood in his ears. He felt tears in his eyes, he was breathing heavily. Sarah was watching him now, her brow furrowed in confusion and worry. He could see her mouthing the words, Are you okay? He felt the sweat on his brow and then slap. He was landed off his chair onto the floor. Sarah gasped and jumped out of her seat. The commotion caught the attention of an usher who rushed to the box to see what was happening and Sarah and John were led into the foyer. John sat on a chair and began to calm down. His breathing had slowed and the feeling of intense panic had abated. What happened? the usher asked. Are you okay? Did you faint? John explained what happened, that he was sitting watching the show having a lovely time and he suddenly felt overwhelmingly panicked. And then... He paused before he said what happened next. Something had slapped him. He didn't know how else to describe it, but something had slapped him hard across the face. He knew it wasn't Sarah because he was looking at her when it happened, but he felt a hand slap him hard and he couldn't understand it. The usher said nothing. Sarah's mouth was slightly open as she stared at John. I saw it happen, she said. I I heard it happen. I heard the slap. I think that's why I jumped up. But I saw John being thrown from his chair. I saw his head fly back with the force. I don't understand what happened. And I don't understand how this is possible. Already, as they sat in the foyer, the clear outline of a hand was appearing on John's cheek red and angry. It was somehow more shocking for them when the usher told them that they weren't the first people that this had happened to, and to keep an open mind while they learned the story of what had happened many years ago. Lucille loved going to the theatre alone, and society at the time dictated that it was improper for a woman to attend the theatre on her own, so she had no option but to book a box in order to watch the show without looks or whispers and to be honest she enjoyed it. Sitting in the box offered privacy that allowed her to be completely absorbed in the show. While she sat, she began to feel odd, somehow off. She had the prickly feeling in the back of her neck like she was being watched. Without going into the lower details of what happened next, Lucille was, in fact, being watched. And it wasn't by anything paranormal. She was being watched by a man who had snuck into the box behind her and the first she knew of it was when he wrapped his arm around her throat. Lucille's fight-or-flight response was to fight and fight hard and she managed to rake her nails across the man's face, slapping him 
kicking him, giving her a chance to scream and draw attention to herself. Lucille fought and kicked and screamed until people were able to get into the box and apprehend the man. And while she emerged completely traumatised, she was alive and the attacker was caught. But something about that moment left an indelible stain on the brick and mortar of that box. Women who sat alone reported feeling overwhelming feelings of anxiety and fear in the box with no discernible cause. But it was the men who really felt the consequences. Not only would they feel the same panic and fear, but they also frequently reported feelings of being slapped, with visible hand marks being seen, or they would report the feeling of being grabbed around the throat. It is almost as though the energy, the trauma of that moment, had a profound impact, and men are destined, or perhaps doomed, to feel the effects of that senseless attack for the rest of time. Jen sat on the toilet with the lid down. It had been a rough, rough show. And she'd been sat here for 10 minutes, scrolling through Instagram mindlessly, just needing a break before she faced the post-show cleanup. She absently googled whether it was a full moon because that was the only thing that could really have explained how tricky the audiences had been tonight. She heard the bathroom door open and instinctively lifted her feet and tucked her knees up to her chest so no one would know she was in there. She heard heeled footsteps walk into the bathroom and breathed a sigh of relief. It wasn't her boss. She silently untucked her feet and placed them back on the floor again. She cocked her head to one side and listened. Whatever this person was wearing, it was making a lot of noise. There was this loud, busy rustling that was wholly unfamiliar to her. What in the world was this woman wearing? She shifted to try and get a glimpse of her in the crack in the door, but froze when she heard a noise that made her skin crawl. The woman was crying. Oh God, this night was just getting worse and worse. Jen listened as the woman sobbed pitifully, and then she leaned closer to the crack in the door because she wanted to get a look at her. Jen's eyes found the crack in the door and she scanned the mirror. The woman was still crying, and she was standing in front of the mirror wearing some sort of bizarre Victorian dress with numerous skirts. She scanned up her body and almost fell off the toilet as she made direct eye contact with her. The woman was staring right at her through the mirror. Jen gasped and whipped her head away. Her heart was pounding, and she realised the sound of the crying had stopped. What was really messing with her head was that when she made eye contact with the woman... The woman's face was completely blank. Jen could hear the sound of the crying as though it was coming from the woman, but her face was blank and expressionless. Jen made the decision to leave the cubicle, threw open the door and saw nothing. No one. Oh God, thought Jen. It was her. She's real. Victoria was an actor and a damn good one at that. She had finished up her show and returned to her dressing room to remove her costume and makeup. She locked the door behind her and was never seen again. It was her friend, a fellow actor, who raised the alarm. She knocked on Vicky's dressing room door at the end of the night, as was their nightly routine, and there was no response. She knocked again and nothing, 
and there were no signs of life from within the dressing room. She went to the front of house to check if Vicky had left, but she hadn't. She searched the theatre. It was so late that the crew were setting up the ghost light. She managed to convince the theatre security to find a spare key and unlock Victoria's dressing room door. And there was nothing. No sign of Victoria. All of her possessions were there. She had never changed out of her costume. There was no sign of a struggle and nothing was missing. But Victoria was never seen again. There are numerous theories as to what happened to her. Did she simply run away in full costume? Was she murdered by a crazed fan or a member of the crew? No one knew. But it is suspected that she died on sight, likely murdered, and that her body was hidden or buried somewhere in or near the theatre. Her spirit is regularly seen by audience members and staff alike on the third floor of the theatre. There are, of course, other stories about the Victoria Theatre. I said in the beginning that there were three spirits, and I guess that isn't strictly speaking true. A more appropriate way to put it would be that there were three spirits. There is one more story about one more spirit that seems to have disappeared as the theatre was physically altered. The story goes that a man took his own life in the auditorium in a particularly bizarre and gruesome way involving a knife bolted to a chair and him throwing himself on top of it. His face was reportedly seen multiple times in the curtains at the back of the stage, but this ended when the curtains were removed as the theatre was modernised. As there is a ghost in every theatre, there were a world of ghost stories to sift and rifle through for this episode. There are theatres which house the ghosts of presidents and assassins, royalty, actors and children, directors, audience members and patrons. The Drury Lane Theatre in London is said to be the most haunted theatre in the world and is home to a host of ghosts. From the man in grey whose body was found bricked into a wall with a dagger still wedged in his ribs, surrounded by playing cards and coins. His body was quietly removed and given a proper burial. But the man in a grey cloak with a dagger in his side is seen moving through the theatre and sometimes even sitting watching performances. There is the ghost of Charles Macklin, who stabbed a fellow actor through the eye in an argument over a wig. He was sentenced to being branded with a hot iron, but lived to the ripe old age of 107. And as soon as he died and his body was interred into the ground, his spectre appeared in Drury Lane. A tall skeletal figure that stalks the backstage area of the theatre. And the list goes on. But there was one story that I came across that broke the mould. It was not the story of a spectre floating through the winding backstage areas, still trying to relive its glory days. No, this was something altogether more sinister. More dangerous. It is the story of a cursed costume. Costume was limited. And if she didn't wear the jacket, there were no other options. The wardrobe mistress had little patience for the diva behaviour of actors. Put the bloody jacket on and stop your whinging. She slapped the black bolero into the woman's hands and stood waiting with her hands on her hips. Well, go on then. Put it on for God's sake. I don't have all day. The woman trembled slightly as she slowly slipped the jacket over her arms. 
It fit perfectly and was the thing that finished her costume just right. Brilliant, said the wardrobe mistress as she turned around to write down the item next to the actor's name. Now, that wasn't so awful, was it? She didn't get a response. Instead, she heard a strange, gagging, choking noise. She turned to see the actress standing in the same spot, clawing frantically at her neck. She had turned a dark shade of red and her eyes were bulging out of her skull. Oh my God, girl, what is it? The wardrobe mistress shouted. She tore at the buttons of the bolero that were tied at the woman's neck, eventually pulling the jacket off her. The actor sank to her knees, gasping for air. I told you, she cried. I told you I didn't want to wear it. I swear it was getting tighter and tighter around my neck. The wardrobe mistress could only stand in shock. The bolero was in her hand, and she could see the red marks like fingerprints around the woman's neck. The actor fled from the room, still crying, and the wardrobe mistress, almost in a haze, hung the jacket back up. But this time, she made sure she hung it away from everything else. She thought it had been a silly rumour that had gotten out of hand, but now she had seen it with her own eyes. That girl was choking. The jacket fit her fine, perfectly even. And then suddenly she was choking. It wasn't the first time this had happened, and it certainly wouldn't be the last time. No one knew exactly how the jacket had ended up in the costume department of the Duke of York Theatre, but there it was, a beautiful black velvet bolero that was the perfect staple costume piece. Some said that the jacket had come from a neighbouring theatre when a show had transferred, and others said that it was made specifically for a production of Charlie's Aunt. But either way, it was used in a production of The Queen Came By, and that was when the complaints really started. Every single female member of the cast who had tried on the jacket complained that it seemed to wrap itself around their neck tighter and tighter, and that it felt as though the jacket was actively strangling them. The female lead of the production, Thora Hurd, didn't believe any of the nonsense, but still when she was called for a wardrobe fitting and the black velvet bolero was produced, she felt a little cold shiver run down her spine. But ever the professional, she braced herself and allowed the jacket to be fastened up to her neck. She kept her eyes closed and waited for the feeling of restriction to start. But she felt nothing. She opened her eyes and laughed a sigh of relief, feeling silly for even entertaining the idea that a jacket could strangle her. It was so ridiculous. But it stopped being ridiculous when she was standing on the stage and she felt the fabric suddenly tighten around her neck and she could have sworn that it felt like hands gripping her throat. Inwardly, she was panicked as she struggled to breathe, but outwardly her face betrayed nothing. She managed to turn her back to the audience in a moment while the action was elsewhere on the stage and rip open the buttons on the bolero, allowing her to open it first, giving her some relief. And eventually she slipped it off without anyone realising what was happening. The sensations disappeared instantly once the jacket was off. The jacket was causing quite the stir, and the costume department or the producers weren't quite sure what to do with it, but no one wanted a cast full of spooked actors, so the wife of a producer loudly told all who would listen 
that she would happily wear the coat and wasn't in the least bit worried about it. She would wear it and show everyone that what was happening was nothing short of the flights of fancy of empty-headed actresses. That was all. She pointedly put the coat on with no sense of trepidation. She was genuinely convinced the whole thing was nonsense. And to her sheer delight when she tied up the buttons on her neck, nothing happened. There was no strangling sensation. She triumphantly paraded around in the coat, telling people that there was nothing at all to worry about. It was all silly hysteria. Everything was fine. That was until she took off the jacket and the people around her audibly gasped in shock. She ran to look at herself in the nearest mirror and saw what the others were so shocked by. There were handprints around her neck. They weren't there before she'd put the jacket on, but they were there now, almost rising like welts from her skin. Something needed to be done with the jacket and fast. And if you thought that they removed the jacket from the theatre or at least considered destroying it, then you would be wrong. Instead, it was decided that the only course of action was to hold a seance in the theatre to figure out who or what was haunting the jacket. The exact details of what happened at this seance are unknown, but versions of the story are still passed around by theatre folk to this day. During the seance, it transpired that the jacket had been worn by a young woman, a young woman who had been murdered by her boyfriend. He had cornered her in the theatre after others had left, and in a jealous rage he had strangled her. He stripped her clothes off and somehow removed her body from the theatre where he stuffed her into a barrel and rolled her into the Thames. Somehow, the jacket had remained in the theatre as a piece of costume and had absorbed the energy of that terrible event, repeating it again and again when it was worn by unsuspecting actors. You would think then that the jacket would have been destroyed, and again you would be wrong. The jacket was bought by an American who we only know as Lloyd. He was fascinated by the stories of the jacket and bought it as a paranormal artefact. He reported that he, his wife and his children had all experienced a strangling sensation that could not be explained when they put the jacket on. And no one knows where it ended up. It's been lost to the annals of time. As I said, there are ghost stories in every theatre. Even here in Canterbury, there are ghost stories associated with the Marlowe Theatre, which is a new theatre that, to my knowledge, no one has died in. We can't help but be fascinated by the idea of theatre ghosts. Maybe it's the romanticism of the theatre that allows us to believe that actors would return there, desperate to tread the boards once more. Or maybe in the case of theatre owners or directors, their spirit remains because it was here that they saw some of their best work come to fruition. Theatres are places of passion and magic. But in the half-darkness of the ghost light, are we really seeing shadows? Or are our minds just playing tricks on us? I did not realise how much that final sentence sounded like the ending of a Sex in the City episode until I read it out loud. And that night, as the curtains came down, I asked myself, are we really seeing shadows? Or is it just our minds playing tricks on us? That was my best Carrie Bradshaw impersonation for you there. 
Um, so before we go any further, I wanted to tell you what my sources were for this particular episode. So I um, read a really good article by a person called Sophie Neils that was written in 2010 in The Guardian. That was all about the, t- the little tricks that they used in theatre to create ghosts. And then the most of my stories came from a book called Haunted Theatres. Uh, retold by Tom Ogden so it's a it's a good little book it's got loads of stories from theatres in America Canada and the UK and here's my overriding feeling about (laughs) about these theatre stories is that there's very little actual evidence for any of these stories and it seems like for the most part the stories grew up to explain phenomena that people were experiencing rather than the haunting stemming from tangible events. Now, with the exception, I think, of the Grey Man, like Drury Lane seems to be a really interesting place. And the Grey Man in Drury Lane, who was found in the walls and kind of taken out and buried, those apparitions only started after his body was found, if that makes sense. So I don't think there were apparitions of a man in grey, in a grey cloak before his body was found. So that's kind of an interesting one. But in regards to the haunting of the Victoria Theatre in Dayton in particular, those stories seem to be legends, really, legends of the theatre. I mean, I'm not sure entirely how much of those stories would have been reported on. So if you had an actress that went missing, I think that would have been reported on in the newspapers. And if a woman was attacked in the box by like a and kind of unknown attacker, I think that would have been that would have been reported on too. And uh, because we all know that newspapers, you know, whatever century they're in, they loved a bit of sensationalism for real. Like they really loved sensationalism. And really any sort of juicy story from the theatre, I think would have been, would have been printed. Even the, the story of the man taking his own life in that bizarre kind of, rig that he had set up where he had a a knife bolted to a seat and then threw himself down you know I think that would have been widely reported on too but then I realized so when I was thinking about that is that in the case of the Victoria Theatre in Dayton in particular were records lost during the Great Flood so when this flood happened in I think it was in 1913 but it was like the worst flood that had happened in Dayton and you know a lot of a lot of infrastructure was completely destroyed so I wonder if a lot of records were lost maybe maybe that's why there aren't any records really of these stories that potentially happened but we're not sure if they did happen so maybe there is a little bit of a grain of truth in these stories and theatres themselves like they do have a really rich history they are places of very real emotion both enacted and otherwise and you kind of have people from every spectrum of humanity that will visit the theatre, work in the theatre. So it's an interesting place and it's often a place of really high emotion. So I don't know maybe if that makes it more susceptible for hauntings. I don't know. I don't know. The other thing about theatres as buildings in general is that universally they are creepy as shit after dark. When there's nobody else in there, theatres are pretty spooky. Even during the daytime, like if you're in a theatre during during the daytime doing tech runs or whatever, like they're pretty spooky. They have that same vibe as like schools after dark where you think, oh, this is really scary, even if it's a new building, because it should be teeming with life. There should be loads of people here and there's not loads of people here and it's freaking me out a little bit. And in regards to the kind of multitude of stories that exist in the theatre world, I guess it's also really important to remember that the people who work in theatres in whatever capacity are storytellers, you know, 
There are people who are going to pass on these stories. They're going to tell these stories. They're going to add their own flair to the stories that they're telling. And they get passed on from generation to generation. Like there are undoubtedly numerous iterations of each of the stories from the Victoria Theatre in Dayton and the stories from all of the theatres, even the stories from Drury Lane. You know, there's going to be loads of different versions of those stories. The thing, however, that I was not expecting to come across today was a haunted jacket. Did not, did not really expect it. All the way through that bit, I was envisioning the Simpsons episode where Homer gets the hair transplant and it turns him evil because it was Snake's hair. And then the hair like eventually pulls the hair off his head and it like crawls across the floor. That's what I was seeing. That's what I was seeing with this. I was seeing the jacket as an animate object, like filled with an invisible human crawling across the floor, which is absolutely not what happened. However, I did look up Thora Heard because I thought, oh, okay, well, if she's a real actress, then, you know, we should be able to see whether or not she was working in the Duke of York Theatre at that time. And actually she was. Uh, She was a very famous actress, a very famous character actress who had a very long and successful career and she was working in the Duke of York Theatre at that time. And the story was actually quite widely reported but like I said there's lots of different versions of it. So there's another version that I read where this the jacket was actually got from kind of a, a vintage shop. It was from the 1800s and then it was used in this performance in the in the 1950s. In this in the other versions that I read though it was worn by multiple members of the cast who all reported the same thing. They brought psychic mediums in who all felt the same thing. One of the actresses claimed that she had had a vision of a girl being strangled while wearing the jacket, but she didn't tell anybody because she thought she was losing her mind. They allegedly brought a couple in off the street to uh, try and do experiments on the jacket, as in they made her put it on. And then when he touched the sleeve of the jacket, he was like overcome with the urge to strangle her. But the fact remains that like the Hexham heads last week, They don't know where the jacket is. So that murder jacket is still out there. Stalking the streets. Stalking the theatres. Looking for its next victim. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn anything about real life ghost stories. You can find out all that you need to know about me and the podcast. On reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com You can also sign up to Patreon. If you are desperate for extra content. That is Patreon dot com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month or two dollars a month you can get access to heaps of extra content and all of the episodes ad free and on that note i shall see you next time